Okay, folks, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. I hope you had a great Christmas, and I hope you will have a great and happy New Year. Uh, just a few thoughts on Christmas. Um, yeah, I think uh, you can say Merry Christmas again with impunity, uh, anywhere, everywhere. I'm not sure that solved the major and ongoing problem, which is to be reminded of what Christmas is all about. The birth of Christ. Okay, that's what it's about. And uh, it seemed just a whole mass of things going on that were not related to that. But uh, so be it. We leave that up to churches and families. And I think many churches and families uh, did the right thing. Uh, we did. We had Christmas. Uh, we had a couple of Christmas get-togethers. Um, the 26th, which is Boxing Day, I am told. Mrs. Bennett instructed me. We had... Um, Family over, my brother, Uncle Bob, the lawyer, we did not pay him his, his fee of $2,000 an hour. Washington's most expensive lawyer. He came for free, but he didn't stay long. Anyway, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, wife and children and grandchildren and cousins and nieces and nephews. Anyway, anyway, Mrs. Bennett did the 12 days of Christmas, and it was quite glorious, and the children loved it. And uh, we were reminded of what Christmas is all about. Hope you kept that in mind as well. Um, end of your thoughts. I'm going to uh, tee off on uh, Philadelphia is a very important place these days, not only because of the Eagles. Um, too bad they lost Wentz um, because they were on their way to the NFC Championship, despite what Chris Beach might tell you about the Vikings. But um, apart from that, um, Philadelphia's uh, got a lot of things going for it, obviously, as a great American city. Um, but... Um, uh, I, I listened to a guy whom I actually like to watch on TV, Michael Smirkonish. He's not my cup of tea in terms of agreeing with him, but he's what he's a he's a radio talk show host, has this TV show on CNN, and he got himself got himself in some trouble by saying Donald Trump was perhaps the most consequential president uh, for one year in office of any president in modern modern history. Well, the liberals hated that uh, because they took consequential to be a compliment. It's not. It's neutral. It means presidency has consequences. Uh, it could mean, you know, Osama bin Laden had consequences too. But uh, I, I don't think he meant it negatively either. He just said the guy has done a lot of things. And that's right. The White House has put out a document, which uh, my colleague Chris Beach has said to me, which I'm reviewing, the 81 achievements of uh, Donald Trump. That's more than the 12 days of Christmas. Um, 81 achievements. And, I, I again, I'll review it four of them with you. The appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the uh, Supreme Court. I met Mr. Gorsuch the other night at a Washington gathering. Uh, and um, very impressive guy. Quiet, um, smart, and um, tremendous amount of learning and young looking, which is great. Um, he said he'd defeat ISIS, the president did, and it looks like he has. He said he'd do something about the border, and it looks like he has the numbers coming across. He said he'd do something about the economy. Lord knows he has, and with this tax cut, more coming, more good consequences coming. So, yes, that is a consequential presidency. The Democrat criticism of him, of course, is that he's terrible, he's oafish, he's rude, he's crude, he's bad, he's this, he's that, even racist, et cetera, et cetera. But apart from that... Uh, they're all thinking, they're all hoping that he will fire Bob Mueller. I don't think he will. 
Um, but I, I don't know. I've been playing with some thoughts. I'd like your reaction to this, folks. Um, supposing he were to say, look, you know, this thing is going on and on and on. I, you know, I don't really don't want to interfere with the process. But could we ask uh, Mr. Mueller to give us an interim report in 60 days, 90 days, you know, the end of March? Uh, can we put some time limit on it? How about, how about you tell us where you are in 60 or 90 days? Or perhaps we'll move on. Uh, I don't think that would be a dreadful thing to do. Uh, any comment on that, guys? Anybody have any comment they want to make? Look, I think it's right to put, I mean, I'm not an Andy McCarthy legal expert, so I don't know. Well, where are you, you, you know? by the way? What's the temperature where you are? <laughs> well, if it sounds if it sounds fuzzy, it's because I'm calling from negative 10 degrees in Iowa. Oh, okay. So, hey. so hey. surprise, cell phones still work here. Now um, you see what candidates go through every four years. Uh, yeah, know? except they don't usually, they time it so they come in the spring or the summer. No, uh, no, but, uh, you know, the Iowa primaries are, you know. Well, the caucus, yeah, the caucus. The caucus, cold, I mean, yeah, 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 sure. All right, go ahead, sir, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, I think your idea is good. I mean, how long can this go on for? Um, you know, and then you just, have, if you're a president, regardless of who you are, to have an investigation hanging over you from day one through the midterm elections, yeah. Yeah, um, right. that's, right. you know, it just hinders any president, regardless of who it is. Right, and so enough, because it's a dark cloud, and it's impeding him. And, uh, you know, it's not impeding him that much, because he's getting a lot done. And there's some eva- reevaluation going on of the president by uh, some of the never-Trumpers and some of the liberals, and uh, even some of the press. So we'll see. But I agree with Smirkonish. It's a very consequential presidency. Uh, okay, we have a good show for you today. We're going to talk about education we're going to talk about foreign policy. We're going to talk about the president's speech. Speaking of the president, his national security speech and strategy. Uh, and that is well worth uh, diving into. And I, again, hope uh, everyone had a Merry Christmas. So let's move on. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, now I'd like to turn to national security. Uh, the week before Christmas, President Trump laid out his new national security strategy in a speech and a 60-page report. The national security strategy explains to the American people, as well as to U.S. allies and our enemies, how the president intends to put his national security vision into practice. It's a very important document. deserves study and appreciation and explanation. It's worthy of time and attention. That's That's what we're going to give it today. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group, and I want to discuss the president's new strategy with the president of the American Strategy Group, Brian Kennedy. Brian, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Bill. Merry Christmas. Merry. Well, before we get into the strategy, how about Christmas? Was Christmas uh, okay at your house? It was just fine. Christmas is a great time of year, and uh, couldn't have been better. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, out there on the West Coast, would you like to talk about UCLA Strategy Group? Mm, no, no, boy, pretty bad game. Yeah, I watched uh, Kansas State take UCLA, over. Man. Yeah, UCLA had you know last night, and probably it's a good thing Americans are worried about football like us. Uh, it is our great national game, and 
We have, some, we have some good games coming up in the next few yeah, weeks, I think. Yeah. I didn't like the way uh, they fell apart and got all these bad penalties and those cheap shots. And They need they need a coach. I, you know, Chip Kelly's coming in. I saw the quarterback, who's a young man I think you know, Josh Rosen, didn't play in the game. I don't know if you had any comment on that. Yeah, I hope Josh comes back for a, a senior year. Uh, I doubt it. Chip Kelly. Yeah, I doubt it, too. And the guy's had a bunch of concussions, and so yeah. probably he'll he'll go to the NFL. We'll hit, well, where he will have a slightly bigger offensive line, but I'm not sure if that would be the case if it's the Cleveland Browns. So yeah, yeah. Uh, ho- hopefully he'll get on a good team. Well, we'll see. Just a word then about um, these games coming up Monday, which you're referring to as well as other bowl games. I follow college like very few people, as you know, and. Uh, I don't have the foggiest idea who's going to win these games. You could tell me either way. It could come out one-sided for Clemson or one-sided for Alabama, and I wouldn't be shocked. You could tell me Georgia totally slows down Oklahoma and wins, or Oklahoma just storms it with passes from Baker Mayfield, and, 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 and I'd believe that. I, I, have just, I just have no idea. But uh, they're very interesting games, and it's a, it's a good lineup, I think. You agree? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what great fun too. You bet. Really close games, really close games like that are great to watch, and there'll be some uh, great enthusiasm out there. So now we always have to needle. Cool. We always have to needle the Ohio State fans because they're always needling me. To those who say, "Well, Alabama didn't deserve to get the number four slot," I would say, "Have you noticed what the betting odds are? Alabama minus three. So <laughs> there they are. The last." The people invited to the dance at number four playing the number one team, and they're favored by three points. So, anyway. Well, Alabama is such a power, and Nick Saban's such a great coach. That's right. This is the time of year that I think he really shines. That's right. All right, the new national security strategy for a new era. Uh, why, break this down into parts, but why is this an important uh, document? Um, refer to the speech or the document, but it's really the document. Why is it important, and how is it different, Brian, from what we've seen in the past? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's the kind of document that I would say is probably as bold a statement of American self-interest, American national interest, as, as we have seen since Ronald Reagan. An unapologetic assertion of why we have to defend this country and who we have to defend it from. And unlike Obama, who soft-pedaled Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, the four great enemies of the United States or strategic competitors, whatever you want to call them, unlike Obama, the Trump administration in this document has, in a very straightforward way, said, here are the problems with these people. Here's what they're trying to do in the world, and here's how we're going to counter them. Uh, that is extremely refreshing for for a national security strategy. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of diplomatic language in this thing. It's American self-interest, and it's serious, and he's dealing with things one at a time. And uh, I, I think it's, other than the tax cut, the most impressive thing this administration's done. Now, it's this assertion, 
seems to me at least, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're the president of the American Strategy Group. This is right down your alley, your strike zone. This assertion of American self-interest is what so distresses a lot of the liberal critics. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the papers have been filled here at the end of 2017 with articles about how uh, <laughs> nations around the world no longer respect the United States and our, our standing in the world is on the decline. I think it's the exact opposite. They see an American president who's willing to stand up for the United States, and they're not quite sure how to deal with it. They've been so used to American presidents seeming as if every single American action has to be in their interest first rather than in our interest. And Donald Trump knows that if the United States is not strong, then whole world is in trouble. We will, we will turn the, the world over to the designs of Russia and China and the Islamic world. And so uh, yeah. the, the liberals don't know quite how to deal with this, with, with such an assertive presidency. Yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, of uh, the bends here after eight years of Obama, seems to me. You've got, well, one calls to mind, you know, the apologies, apologies for the United States. Uh, semi-apologies, lead from behind, this need for, you know, us to have partnerships and allies, and of course we need allies and partnerships, but this notion of American primacy, right? I mean, that's what it is, this assertion of of the importance of America, the prominence of America, uh, the affirmation uh, of of American uh, greatness, and that it must lead uh, is uh, shocking to some of the years in the, in, the, in the foreign policy establishment. Is that the most important thing it does? Is it it shakes us out of a, a, a previous notion of, you know, we have to go gently and quietly and humbly into that, into that world? Um, this, this new affirmation, this uh, statement of American strength and self-interest... Yeah, I think it does. Um, but it, it does it does little things like explain what Russia is doing in the world and all their nefarious behavior. Everyone, the, the left is caught up in this illusion, just a, a, a grand lie, as it were, that Trump conspired with the the Russians to, to win the presidency when nothing could have been further from the truth. Uh, when you look at this document, these are the exact same things Trump was saying during the campaign, which is that Russia, we'd like to have good relations, but they're bad actors in so many ways. This document lays out where they're the bad actors, who they're supporting in the world, uh, whether it's Iran or North Korea or working with China uh, or whether it's cyber hacking or any of those kind of things. It spells it all out. These are really the same things he was saying last year, but in this document, he just he puts it out there, as well as China, all their bad behavior when it comes to the support of North Korea. Mm-hmm. I will say as an aside, um, it looks like in the last week, the Chinese were continuing to sell North Korea oil yeah. in violation, in violation yeah. of what they said they would do. So 
and this document just points out all their ongoing bad behavior. It, it, unlike the previous administration that was soft peddling it on Iran and looking the other way at Iran's support of terrorism, Hezbollah most especially, uh, this document points that out, says how we're going to combat that. We're going to work with allies in the region. We've been reestablishing those alliances, but it is, it is a clear statement of what we believe in and what we need to do. And that's important because that's a signal to the rest of the government. You know, we talk about the deep state at times. This document is meant to guide them. It's meant to guide the intelligence yeah. community, the Defense Department, and the State Department. Here's how we're going to operate. This is our strategy. And it'll be a thing that patriotic men and women working for our government can turn to and say, this is the strategy of the United States that we have to carry out. Yeah, From I that had... point of view, that's a very useful thing. It's not just for people like yeah. us who, yeah. who, talk to, uh, who talk to Americans, but for the government itself to understand what it's trying to do is a, is a key thing. Yeah, I had uh, breakfast, a uh, very early breakfast this morning with a, a Trump appointee of the State Department. And um, I said, you know, I was, was going to be talking to you about this this document. And I said, do they believe it at State Department? He said, well, the people matter do. And uh, he said, you know, it's it's difficult. We're trying to get the, you know, the, the, the career people in line. But it was clear from the conversation we had that what you just said was true. They very melt, very much felt, at least the State Department and I'm sure other places, that this was addressed to them. Uh, this is what who we are. Uh, this is uh, what we're going to do. We're going to advance American interests, as it says in Part 4, and American influence. Uh, and, you know, get with the program. That's what the message is, right? Get with the program, Swamp, or people who've been here a long time. Because that old way of thinking about America and its role and place in the world is, uh, is superannuated. It's gone. That's over. It's a new. It's a new time. It's a new period. Yes. Yes, and and that alone is is one of the key things about this document. It uh, it doesn't. You know, it it was I thought very well written too, in the sense that it uh, it didn't heavy up on the Obama administration or anyone else for past, right, right. Uh, past naivete or just, you know, bad ideas. It said, unlike the past, this is how we're looking at it now. Uh, you know, whether it's spelling out what North Korea is doing or especially Iran, Iran being such a, a, uh, a key bad actor here working with North Korea on their, on their missile development. But it, it just had clarity, and that was a very useful thing. There's a there's a section in there talking about the need for missile defense, yeah. Which is as we've talked about before on the show, yep. is is a key thing. And the president just signed a four billion dollar addition to the missile defense budget. But it talks about the need for a layered missile defense to deal with all sorts of threats, not going to be destabilizing, but just going to defend the United States no matter what. He talks about protecting the electric grid of the United States right. from a cyber attack, physical attack, or an electromagnetic attack. There's great clarity just in that. And if we can get that done, that will be a, a very uh, absolutely yeah. necessary thing. 
for, for the defense of the country. He talks about energy dominance, not just independence, but dominance. I think Trump likes those words, dominating, uh, especially economic issues. But economics plays a big part of this, too. And America having a strong economy and a strong position in the world is good for freedom, freedom at home and freedom abroad. So uh, in that sense, this thing is a moral document, too. Yeah, yeah. We're talking to Brian Kennedy. Uh, he's the president of the American Strategy Group. And I just want to insert here, if you want to learn more about the work of the American Strategy Group, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Brian, let's get into some of the individual elements or at least uh, talk about some of the countries. You mentioned North Korea, Iran, China. Let's start with Iran. Uh, what's the message to Iran or the strategy vis-a-vis Iran that's laid out in this document? There, I think, uh, they're being unequivocal that Iran is the leading sponsor in the world of terrorism. Now, that is absolutely contrary to everything the Obama administration was asserting. These countries like to play this game that, well, these are only a few bad actors and we can't control them. And, you know, you Americans can't control terrorism. You really can't expect us to be able to control terrorism. Well, when in fact it's the Iranian government sponsoring terrorism throughout the world, whether it's in in Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or other parts of the world, it's Iran, the government that is doing that. This administration is figuring out ways of checking that. That's a key thing all by itself, unlike the Obama administration, who gave them publicly a pass. Yeah, yeah, and sure did. gave repatriated billions of dollars uh, back to Iran and really pursued that Iranian nuclear deal, which again is a, a sign of either naivete or malfeasance to think that the Iranian government, which has their children announce every day, death to America and death to Israel, that these people should have both money to support terrorism and have a convoluted uh, agreement that will surreptitiously let the Iranians continue to build nuclear weapons. That is the height of, of stupidity. The Trump administration saw that. I think it's one of the reasons the president won. Uh, but here in this document, he's laying out what the administration has been doing and is going to do about it, which is to make sure that the financial networks are yeah. interrupted, working with allies to make sure that they can't uh, they can't continue that, and of course to build a missile defense to negate their their nuclear arsenal. But the Iranians are they're an unusual group. I mean, they they announced not too long ago they were going to sail a naval flotilla into the Gulf of Mexico on a, on a tour of South America. Well, how, how is that possible that the Iranians could think that? Yeah. Unless, unless they were really emboldened on mm. our destruction. Yeah, and, and feeling emboldened, too, by uh, what's occurred the last uh, eight years. Emboldened by what's occurred in the last uh, eight years, and also emboldened by their alliances with Russia and China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 
remember George Bush called it the axis of evil. There really is an axis of evil. Yes, there is. And uh, yeah, no, that, 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 uh, that, that, that's something Trump takes seriously. Sure does. I, and you've mentioned uh, you've mentioned missile defense here a couple of times. I know this particular area of expertise. Will that do it? Is that a good start? Would you say four billion dollars for missile defense? Is that a good start? It is a good start, and um, I and some colleagues have been working in D.C. to try to get them to cut out a mere hundred million of that to build a a uh, interceptor system mm-hmm. that would go on drones mm-hmm. and fly out in international waters off the coast of North Korea to stop a North Korean launch. Uh, American industry is very innovative, and they've figured out ways, uh, a few of these companies, General Atomics and Raytheon and others, they've figured out ways to put very advanced interceptors on board drones, and we think that could be a very effective short-term yeah. check on what North Korea is doing. So, yeah, Trump putting $4 billion into it's a great start. And I'm very uh, you, don't, I mean, you probably don't even need $4 billion, but it's yeah. a start for that. Yeah, your last comment is uh, leading leads to my comment, which is I'm always taken when I hear these numbers often from you. Again, you're, um, you've taught me a lot about this subject of missile defense. It's just not that expensive. I know $100 million, $4 billion, that's real money, as we say. But, you know, we put a trillion dollars into Title I of, uh, you know, our education programs, a trillion dollars. So when you're talking about $100 million or 3 or $4 billion, it's it's never been that expensive to do this thing, which could be crucial. I was talking to one of my sons who's working in the power and energy um, part of, of, of one of uh, America's uh, banks. Um, you know, they support uh, efforts to, you know, build and uh, plants and to, you know, generate uh, power and, and so on. And uh, what you talked about, the electromagnetic pulse is a real concern of theirs. And, um, you know, they are very much worried that such a thing could develop. And so all of these efforts at defending our country, defending our system, uh, and addressing the Iranians as who they are and not who just in our imagination we'd like them to be, um, is uh, is uh, uh, very important. One, one other thing, I don't know if it's relevant or not, but I, I, I talked to somebody else this is an advantage of being in the in the swamp, you know. As you know, we live close to the swamp, and I I know swamp creatures, and some of them are okay. Some of them are now Trump appointees. I guess they're not by definition in the swamp. But um, is is and you would never hear this in the mainstream press. But apparently, I've heard this from several people. The president really loves and values his daily briefing from uh, Mr. Pompeo at the CIA, uh, and. I, I heard from, from someone about it that he always asks about these countries, which you've just mentioned, uh, North Korea, uh, Iran, China, um, and very much uh, wants to be up to date on these. And these are not cursory uh, or going through the motions briefings that the president's getting. He takes it very seriously and asks questions. I don't know if you have any comment on that. I think, yeah, I think that uh, everything you said is uh, quite right. Uh, partly the president has heard about some Iranian uh, uh, issues and Iranian strategies themselves. The strategy of Iran is to use this kind of asymmetric warfare, taking a nuclear weapon, they say, 
launching it in the high atmosphere, trying to create an electromagnetic pulse that could destroy the electric grid of the U.S. And I always hasten, uh, whenever I mention this, just, it, it sounds like a bad science fiction movie, but they actually can do these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. They, they work on these things all the time. This is one reason that your son and his industry of energy was concerned about it. We have an $18 trillion economy that you could bring down overnight if you destroyed the electric grid. Yeah. And when I say destroyed, destroyed. Not, it's not like a circuit breaker goes out and you reset it and everything will be okay. It would destroy the electric grid and the United States as we know it. And the mere fact that the Iranians in documents say that that is their preferred strategy for dealing with the United States, and the president connects that with that with the, the Iranian scientists are at every North Korean missile test and every North Korean nuclear test, that the Iranians are getting help from the Russians and the Chinese. There's no reason, there's every reason, excuse me, that he should be listening closely to Mike Pompeo, who's a very smart guy and a patriot, and thank God he has him there at the uh, CIA. When Pompeo is speaking about these things, Trump is keenly interested because the Iranians have threatened the United States and Trump takes that seriously. Let's let's talk a little bit uh, uh, in the remaining time uh, about the strategy, not about um, somebody who's going to do the things or maybe planning to do the things you're just talking about, but the economic aggressiveness of China. You've uh, written on this and talked about this. But what's the strategy for dealing there? China is getting more and more ambitious about its economic agenda, seeking to enter U.S. markets uh, in, in an even more aggressive way. Uh, what, th- does the strategy address that, or, or what's your advice to the president in terms of addressing that? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, the president does see that that if we're not strong economically, it's hard for us to have a, a leading role in the world. So everything yeah. he talks about in the document is about promoting uh, American investment in energy and technology and, and all the other kinds of research projects that have led to so much prosperity in this country. He does see the Chinese as a competitor in that area. And the, the I mean, he, they, they highlight again in this document what, he, what he's done before in commerce and that is to talk about Chinese uh, cyber theft of American intellectual property rights. He's yep. calling out the he's calling out the Chinese there as thieves stealing American prosperity. That that's a that's a bold statement. That's that is to say, when you do that, you are threatening the livelihoods of the people of the United States. So the, the articulation of that. I thought was important and clear, and I really would encourage you to find it on the White House website. I'll put it on our website, too. But that that alone is a declaration that we're going to take this seriously, unlike uh, administrations in the past. The Chinese are very good at playing this game like, well, look, we're we're still in the development stage, and we can't do this, and we can't do that, and, and implying that we should look the other way when it comes to some of their bad actions. Uh, like intellectual property theft. And Trump's not going to have any of that. He's going to call them out, and he's going to stop it wherever it occurs, and he's going to penalize them wherever he can. Uh, 
we also Good. have this 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 new challenge of the Chinese coming to trying to come to U.S. capital markets and raise money on the New York Stock Exchange. In effect, competing with American companies that are you know raising money yeah. on the New York Stock yeah. Exchange. So the Chinese are serious economic actors, and thankfully the Trump administration sees that. Yeah, and pushing back. That's important. Yeah. Well, let's let's put all this, though, to, to a challenge, to a test. American uh, the assertion of American influence, America first, uh, increase American influence ab- abroad. These are some of the titles of some of the parts of this strategy. But uh, let's test that out in the U.N. Um, is it a response or refutation of what you're saying, that the members of the U.N. by huge numbers uh, – did not go along, to put it mildly, uh, with the U.S. insistence on Jerusalem as the site of our embassy and recognition thereby, and and the condemnation by um, uh, U.N. members uh, of this. Uh, only a few people uh, went with us. Uh, this isn't much. This isn't much influence, is it? If uh, we got that much opposition, what do we make of that, Brian? Oh, I think that uh, the Saudi Arabians and the rest of the the Gulf states that spread a lot of money around the world, they, I'm sure, demanded such condemnation. Uh, and so people at the UN, which is no uh, society collected to advance human freedom, but a society usually uh, designed to berate the United States over and over again, it's no surprise that they, they attacked us or condemned us for that. But uh, a friend of mine was was asking me the other day, William, what do, what do I think of you know, Trump moving the the embassy to Jerusalem? And I said, well, I, I think you should have done it the, the first day in office. You should have declared it because it's part of his. It was part of his campaign that he wanted to do that, but also he knows that we've been trying it the other way of giving into. Yeah, the Palestinians all these years. That's gotten us nowhere. And maybe if we're unapologetic in our defense of Israel, that don't you know the democracy in the Middle East, and stand with them against uh, the Palestinians who look to be primarily a terrorist state, that we will have we will be in a better negotiating position if we could even ever negotiate any of this stuff. But being on the side of freedom and the free world, and friends to those people, uh, that that's a good thing. And the yeah. president was yeah. right to do it, and it was an assertion of his moral uh, view that you stand can, with your friends. Can we... Can and, we and standing with I'm your sorry. friends is an important thing. Sure. Can we judge in the future, in six months or a year, if a similar uh, resolution or action by the U.S. comes up and we get uh, more countries with us, Will that be any kind of test of uh, the, whether the strategy is working or not? No, that won't be. A me- I don't think that would be a measure of anything. <laughs> because but, of I mean, the, it, UN, it, the fecklessness well, of the as, UN. As you know, yeah, right. These people, these, these other yeah. countries are, yeah. Yeah. E- even, I mean, everyone can condemn us, but that doesn't mean we're wrong. doesn't mean our influence is less. Yeah. I think the yeah. world respects us because Trump is willing to stand up for what is right. That worries yeah. them. He is yeah. not interested in the globalist view of what is acceptable at the UN. Yeah, he is. He is interested in what is the right thing to do for the cause of human freedom. 
Huh, that what an idea. What an, what an that idea. Has, that has, <laughs> right, right. That has to panic all these UN yeah, yeah, sure. ambassadors. They haven't seen that in a while here in the United States. She's done pretty well, our ambassador, hasn't she? Especially in this last round. Nikki Haley? I think she has. I think yeah. she has. Yeah. I think she's been uh, quite assertive and quite clear. I always worry when she gets too far out in front of things. Yeah. You know, we, 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 do like, we do like to uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. Yeah. In general, in general, we would like to do that. But here's a case where the president was, was bold and she defended it. And yeah. she's done a great job. Yeah, I think so, too. Brian, we need to wrap it up. Any any other thoughts about the strategy? You've been very helpful talking about its significance, the parts of it, what it represents, uh, how it, uh, it, it it deals with a variety of topics from American strength and influence uh, def- to defensive measures. Um, are we missing anything major here, or would you like to have make a closing comment about the strategy or recommendation for the listeners in regard to how they should view it, think about it, read it? Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add to it is there are certain things that have to happen. Congress has to help him in certain areas to help rebuild the American military and modernize our nuclear forces. And there are certain there are certain pieces of this that are yet to be done. But if he can he can if he can work with Congress to rebuild the military, and if he can carry out the aspirations and the specificities of this document. I think I think we'll be safer now than we have been in quite some time, and I, I and citizens of this country should be very encouraged by that. Uh, that's a great closing thought. That's a good one. That's a great one to close out uh, 2017 with, which is what we'll do now. Brian Kennedy, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your work with the American Strategy Group, and we are much encouraged by what you had to say and by what the president is doing. Indeed, a consequential president. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, it's time for one of my favorite people in the whole world. He is a troublemaker. That's the uh, name of one of his books, title of one of his books, but he is also probably the best and most well-informed voice uh, on education, education reform in the country. His name is Checker Finn. He is the Distinguished Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and the Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. If you want to keep up with what's going on in education, uh, you need to uh, check in with Fordham. What, what's the best uh, place to go on the Internet to get all the Fordham stuff? I did it so long ago, I can't remember what it is. Well, the, the, the website, which is a pretty good starting place, is, is www.edexcellence.net. Good, great. It's a great source of information and really where I got the material for my questions. It's the end of the year, Checker. Uh, we've done this before, you and I. Uh, we, Of course, we did our own year in review and we worked together at the U.S. Department of Education. But uh, let's do a year uh, in review in education. What happened this year? Anything interesting? Anything positive? Should we be more encouraged after uh, this year about a serious education reform or not? A little bit more encouraged. The, the the biggest development was, of course, the the fifty states beginning to respond to a new federal law that gives them greater discretion and authority over how they organize their 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 standards and tests and accountability mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things like that. 
and a bunch of states, uh, at least based on their written plans, have have um, made good use of this of this flexibility, and um, have a much more sort of creative approach to uh, how they're going to go forward than they had under the much more rigid uh, No Child Left Behind Act. Um, so that's okay. probably the, the the best thing that happened. I don't think we can point to any significant gains on the achievement front, though we don't have much. We don't also don't have much new data on the achievement front. Of course, the most colorful thing that happened this year was the the saga of Betsy DeVos as U.S. Secretary of Education. Um, but I think that's a, a, a sideshow myself. Okay, well, we may or may not get into that. I want to really talk about what's going on in the states and, and indeed in some of the schools. Yeah. Um, let's pick up on that. The federal legislation was uh, ESSA, right? Every Student yes. Succeeds Act. One of the threshold questions, and it was a big question at the time, is what are the feds serious? Are they really returning authority to the states to set curriculum to do other things? Uh, is this really a, a a devolution of power and authority from the federal government, which was trying to get more and more authority and power over education uh, back to the states? Does it seem serious? Did it seem like they meant it, uh, or this administration means it? I think I think yes. Um, I think that um, the. Uh, states' ESSA plans are getting approved in Washington, even in some cases where where I think they maybe should not myself, um, because the states have been put in charge of the of making their own decisions. Um, um, I'm I'm stuck in a policy role in Maryland, and I think our plan, which has been much constrained by the state legislature, is not really very very good. But the feds are going to approve it anyway, I'm sure. So, yeah, we have authority. And, and, and it's, of course, that's a mixed blessing because not every state will exercise it wisely. But, but it's a good thing. I think we also have other evidence. And, and here, Secretary DeVos deserves some credit. So does the administration. That's on the deregulation side, they are deregulating other things and getting in, getting in hot water as a result of doing so. I mean, they're deregulating, yeah. you know, bathrooms and things like that. I hope they deregulate discipline. Um, I think that the deregulatory part of the administration's agenda is also certainly having its early effects in, in K-12 education, and, and that really does amount to returning authority to states and districts that in ways that they didn't have it before. Good. I, it, you mentioned in passing, I'd like you to elaborate just a second, you not only are the commentator of record on what's going on in the country, you do retail, too. Uh, <laughs> tell people what you do in Maryland. Well, I'm on the State Board of Education, uh, thanks to, mixed, mixed thanks to Governor Hogan for putting me there. Um, and uh, I'm at the moment vice chairman of the State Board of Education. And uh, uh, that's actually ended up being very interesting, just seeing the sort of innards of a state policy uh, situation. And of course, Maryland's a deep, a deep blue state, and the legislature, it's no secret, is heavily uh, influenced by the teachers' union. And uh, that affects us in all sorts of ways that I think are undesirable. Another time, I'd like to talk to you about what exactly it means when someone who really knows a lot about education, like you, serves serves on on a state board. And I'm not criticizing the people who are, you know, amateurs, large-minded amateurs who serve. As I've said, if you're on any board of education, as far as I'm concerned, I think I can say as a Catholic, you do not have to go to purgatory when you die because you've already you've already <laughs> been you, there. You go. I think the amateurs um, maybe aren't as anguished as the people okay. that know something about it. 
All right. Let, let's go to some specifics because, uh, as I said, I, I read all the Fordham stuff, and it really helps keep me up. Um, let, let's let's go to some uh, let's go to some bad news first. This most recent story, I think, it was Brandon Wright who wrote the article, the first article I read about yeah. gra- graduation and achievement. Can you fill in the blanks? Give a little color here. Yeah, this was his article was about Baloo High School in uh, northeastern D.C., um, which has um, now been the object of, of, of several articles um, suggesting that a very large number of the kids getting diplomas at this uh, almost entirely African-American high school basically didn't earn them. They uh, didn't have the grades. They didn't have the attendance. They 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 basically got fraudulent diplomas and uh, were then accepted in one or another kind of college. Uh, and um, there's parallels, incidentally, an almost simultaneous uh, story in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, where a very large fraction of the last two graduating classes um, was found by external auditors to have basically not deserve their diplomas. At least they were not in attendance enough to earn a proper diploma. And what we're seeing in those two cases, and I'm afraid in a lot of other places, is that the pressure to boost graduation rates from high schools is causing a lot of fake graduations to take place. Uh, and this is... Uh, in the end, of course, not good for the kids who are getting these, these, these sort of fraudulent diplomas. And it's not good for the country either to think that we're boosting our graduation rate when it's when it basically all rests on air. This was Baloo High School, school I know yeah. pretty well. Is, was this the worst of the bunch, or was this pretty typical of public high schools in D.C. or public high schools in inner cities uh, around the country. Do you think it's much worse at Baloo, or it's pretty well, much like Baloo at places in Detroit, L.A.? I think this so. is an extreme example of a, of, of, of a widespread phenomenon. Okay. Uh, I, I think that the numbers in, at Baloo are probably grossly larger than most other places, but uh, um, we're seeing, and incidentally, it's not just inner city high schools. We're also seeing suburban high schools okay. where kids who are basically goofing off or not attending very well are, are given um, opportunities, shall we say, it's usually called credit recovery, to make up the, 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 the uh, transcript credits they didn't earn properly and end up graduating um, in a kind of quick and dirty um, or fast and easy way. Uh, and okay. so it's not just an, an inner city thing. The Baloo case, uh, and I think several of the high schools in Prince George's County are, are exceptionally vivid cases of it. Yeah, um, a couple of indices. I mean, I, I was interested in reading the article that you all did, and then I guess it was was it NPR that did a full report on this? Yeah, session? they did a long investigation and came right. up with a whole bunch of quotes and exact right. specific numbers well, and things like that. Well, the thing I was interested in is, is absences. There were tons of absences yep. at, at the school, 30, 60, yep. even 90. But, you know, arguably, you know, because one person says, well, the kids can learn at home. After all, this whole emphasis on physical space is a, you know, throwback and people can do stuff at home. But there were some other indices in there, like how many uh, were proficient in reading, how many proficient in math. Do you recall those numbers? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the NPR thing now, and it and and it says that uh, you know in in April, two months before graduation, only 57 students were on track to graduate, but in June, 164 of them got diplomas. So um, basically, uh, three times as many got diplomas in June as were on track in April. 
Um, that's yeah. we're talking about seniors in high school, so this is this is definitely not a good sign. I, the attendance thing isn't as important to me because it is true that kids, especially teenagers, um, can learn in all sorts of places and um, on on the job and at home. I don't really care whether they're sitting in class, but I really do care about evidence, ev- hard evidence as to whether they've actually learned something. Yeah, that's right. And, and and as I recall these numbers, correct me if I'm wrong, I think in the article I just read, something like 7% of the senior class was proficient in reading and zero, I believe it was zero percent proficient in math. Yeah, I believe that's right, using the, the state tests or D.C.'s equivalent of state tests. Um, I, think, I think that's right. Now, proficiency rates all around the country are, 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 are low. They're typically in the 30, 40 percent. Uh, if the state has done a decent job of setting a standard, a real-world standard that has something to do with college readiness. Um, so we wouldn't expect, except in, in very special high schools, uh, to get much above 40%. But, uh, but no, the numbers you're citing are, are appalling. And, um, uh, and the fact that kids are graduating anyway means that they're graduating yeah. unready for what follows. Yeah, uh, let's talk about that a minute because, you know, I did a book uh, called Is College Worth It? And, yep. and, and I asked the question, is college worth it? And I'm interested in the effect here. So obviously a lot of these kids who are not at all proficient in math and very low proficiency in, in reading uh-huh. go to college, they're not by some definition ready for college. But right. I wonder, does this uh, over time, and their graduation rates from college are therefore very low, but does this over time uh, diminish um, standards, lower standards in college? My guess yes, is it, it, yes, it would. It, it would have to. Yes, it does. It's it, and and the evidence of that is the the movement now all over the country to turn what used to be called remedial courses in college, which was the kind you did not get college credit for, uh, into what they now call things like co-requisite courses, where it's sort of remedial, but you also get credit for it um, in college. And this is happening all over the place. And the 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 the, the assertion for it is that this will cause the college students to be less discouraged and more likely to stick with college. Uh, and that may be true, because there's been a, a heinous college dropout rate among underprepared yeah. students yeah. who go in, into remediation. Um, and, and that's bad, but it's also bad to cheapen the, co- the, the college degree and um, end up with um, bachelor's degrees or associate's degrees that are fraudulent in their own way. And I think we are definitely... Yeah. Uh, headed in that direction in a lot of places. Yeah, and I wonder too. Uh, I want to indulge this for long, but I wonder too if this has then another uh, lowering effect uh, post graduation. I heard a story the other night from a, a young man working at a, a big corporation in Chicago, who said, "Well, you know, we have a couple of uh, graduates who are obviously just socially promoted through high school and through college, uh-huh. and, and now and now at the job." Uh-huh. And rather than getting a dose of reality, they're getting more of the same. Um, in the job. Yeah, come in late and leave early and everybody yeah. heaps praise on them because they you know, they wanna they wanna they wanna be politically correct. They wanna say, Oh, what a fine, hard working person. When yep. they're actually putting in half the effort that every that everybody else is. I mean well, one wonders the, about the what's the word I'm looking for? Deadening, flattening, lowering effect of this on you know, morale well, the, on the, the workplace, on everything else. The phrase in my mind is is Moynihan's defining deviancy down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're now accepting as sort of the new normal um, things that we used to regard as completely unacceptable. 
Do you do you think I asked this the other day of, of a couple of uh, employers? I, I, I hear all the time, and the president says it, others say it, and I'm I'm all for the sentiment. American workers are the best in the world. Are we really? I mean, truly? Um, I mean, a good part of our workforce, I think, going in, just like a good part of the this graduating class, is not so great. Is not so ready. Uh, Shakespeare says readiness is all. They're not ready. Uh, are we? Do you know? Or do we have to call the Secretary of Labor? Is, is, are we truly are we truly the most qualified workforce, or do you have suspicions? I know I know from you know other work I'm doing, like in the whole drug issue, uh-huh. the, the opioid thing. All you know, male participation in the workforce is very low. Um, you see what you see what I'm getting at? Is yeah. there this this defining yeah. down? Quoting. I don't know about I, I don't know about data on the workforce, but I I and I do think that a a, a saving grace still of American education is that. It's a land of second second chances. Sure, people, sure. Adults can go back to school and get training they didn't have when they when they joined the workforce, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, and I think a lot of and I know a lot of people do it. A very large fraction of community college students, for example, or people in their thirties and forties coming back for some mm-hmm. training or certification that they didn't get originally. Um, so I think we we still have a lot of good makeup opportunities, but. Uh, I wouldn't bet a whole lot on the new new entrance into the workforce yeah, yeah, as yeah. being very well qualified, either in the skills that we're, we've been talking about just now, or the so-called soft skills, the conscientiousness and diligence and and and, yeah. and reliability, reliability, those kinds of things. Yeah, and if you're talking about you know somebody from a particular background, from you feel sorry and gee, you know they had no parents, they made it right. true. There may there may be a case for no one ever tells them the truth. Right. Frankly, frankly, your work's not very good. But, but the, remember, you know, everybody just wants to... Remember the song from the, the West Side Story song, G, Officer Krupke? Yeah. Yeah, my mother was a, <laughs> a crook, or my father was a crook, and so forth. And yeah. So don't blame, don't blame me. Don't blame me, yeah. All right, yeah. It's, 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 it's worrisome. Just a couple of with what you just said. You hear we have the best workers in the world, but you talk to a lot of employers, as you do, Checker, and they'll tell you they're not ready. You know, they're not ready. So it's a concern. Let's not. It is Christmas time. It is the yes. good cheer, season for joy and celebration. Let's celebrate something. I'm taking too long on this, but let's take a couple of minutes. You had a great panel discussion. I was hoping to get there in uh, in Washington, yeah. on Massachusetts, the mass, so-called Massachusetts miracle. Not yeah. the one, Not the one on ice, not the hockey team. <laughs> But uh, but the other one. Tell us tell us about this. What happened in Massachusetts? Uh, they about twenty years ago um, entered into what uh, is now commonly called the grand bargain for education, where they uh, uh, significantly raised standards for kids and also for teachers, and they then enforced them. Uh, and they added some school choice in the form of charter schools, and they sort of lubricated all this with a fair chunk of additional money uh, for the systems, the the, the, the low-income systems and, and teachers who were, in effect, uh, sort of bought off teachers' union to accept these standards by saying, we'll pay you more. And the upshot over 20 years, and they've stuck to their guns across a whole bunch of elections and political shifts, uh, is that they've now got the highest achieving student population in the country and comparable with the leading countries in the world. And it's the only state that can say that. And uh, our panel 
was um, the former state commissioner of education, Dave Driscoll, who navigated much of this for about about uh, almost 15 years uh, in Massachusetts, and he's part of the he's part of the success story, uh, and it is a success story. Now you, now you mentioned money, but that was more than money. What did they do? Were there tests? Were there assessments? Was there accountability? Well, test- what did they do? Real graduation tests for kids uh, from high school that, were, that they then enforced, and they didn't have a lot of loopholes in them. So we got uh, a, we got the opposite of what we just described in yeah, this, uh, DC exactly. high school. Yeah, okay. exactly. And real um, and real entry tests for new teachers um, that involved subject matter knowledge um, and were much more rigorous than before. A whole lot of their new teachers basically couldn't, or candidate teachers couldn't pass those tests at the beginning. Uh, okay. But they they stuck to their guns on that as well, and they uh, and they also helped kids to to sort of get ready to meet the standards. It wasn't just sort of sink or swim. Uh, it was we will give you the tutoring and stuff like that to get you ready to pass this test. Um, and all boats rose. Uh, incidentally, that that meant that their achievement gaps continued because um, mm-hmm. you know white kids and black kids and brown kids and, and Asian kids all rose and uh, did better. But it meant they didn't get closer together in their scores, and that's a continuing issue in Massachusetts. Uh, another continuing issue in Massachusetts is they didn't set their standard at their their high school exit standard at the at the same level as their college readiness standard, and they know that they thought that uh, moving that high would be too 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 much to for the system to tolerate. But but they have got both attested to by national assessment domestically and PISA tests internationally. They really are validated as having. Yeah achieved more than any other U.S. state has done. Unfair question, but I'm just thinking, giving our, given our earlier discussion, Checker, is there this equivalent of socioeconomically of the students at the at Baloo High School in Washington? Is there such a school with such population in Boston? Sure, where, there's some. Okay, there's some, and, 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 and I don't and, know and, at the bill. At the building level, I don't know how much better they're doing, but um, I think it's fair to say they're doing better than they were. Okay, but I mean, they, I mean, again, that would be a you know an apple to apple. I'm 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 curious. Maybe I can explore that with with Driscoll or or some of the others. Yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just you know if you had an equivalent population, but it rose. I, I'm not much interested in the fact. I mean, I know the discrepancy. I'm sort of interested, but this is kind of like the tax debate. Well, you know, if you're going to give a tax break to the poor and the middle class, you certainly can't give it to the rich because then the differential will still be great. How about everybody gets one? How about everybody, right. everybody's boat goes up and then we'll, right. we'll work Everybody's boat goes up, everybody's taxes go down. Yes, I get that. But is your, your sense that this Massachusetts miracle penetrated or trickled down or whatever whatever verb you want to use, that it worked for all kids or most kids? Whatever it worked level. for most kids and it worked for all subgroups of kids. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, uh, everybody rose. That's uh, and 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 that's a good thing. It's an important thing, and it's an important lesson. And the um, the lessons that other states should take from this are multiple, but sticking to your guns is one of them. Is yeah, no, good, great. Uh, it's a great way to put it. I'm reminded we had an earlier conversation um, on this podcast with Eva Moskowitz, and it looks uh-huh. like looks like she really did it too in in New York City. Correct. She has done it. Now, she's done it for a population of families that are poor and minority, but that are also willing to willing to live with the rigors of her schools. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I mean, obviously some conditions are required. Let's come back to the beginning of our conversation because you're being very generous with your time and I'm using more of it than I said I would. But this is this is really great stuff. And this last stuff is great Christmas present. Um, are any of the states, as far as you know, as they develop their autonomy or get used to their autonomy mm-hmm. or greater autonomy, coming up with plans that, uh, you know, look like the Massachusetts miracle? I... Uh, you know, I'm at, uh, there it is. As you said, it's confirmed by international data. Mm-hmm. I, you've heard me quote before from my philosophy studies. You know, uh, uh, it, you know, you prove that you prove the the, the the possible by the actual. I mean, yep. is it is yep. it possible yep. to teach American kids up to world class standards? Yes, and yes. we can prove it because it was done in Massachusetts. Do you yes. know if any of these state plans have noticed Massachusetts and are trying to do some of the same things? Well, the people that have studied them closely are pretty impressed by what they're seeing coming out of, believe it or not, Louisiana and Tennessee. Okay. Uh, Tennessee has also had sustained leadership across political parties for a good while on education reform, and uh, that's looking pretty good. Louisiana is a bumpier road, but their their state commissioner, who's been in place for a while, is very strong, and they've got a very interesting combination of... uh, better curriculum, higher standards, and a lot more school choice going on. Um, Whether they'll pull off the Massachusetts story, I mean, again, the Massachusetts story took a lot of years to develop. Um, None of this is going to happen overnight. Uh, But uh, I think we've got at least a few states that are are, uh, pushing in the right direction. And uh, it's sort of disappointing that the big states, including a couple that used to be pushing hard in the right direction, like Texas and Florida, um, don't seem to be very energized these days. And California's probably moving in the wrong direction on a bunch of fronts. But uh, uh, a couple of, of less expected states, again, like Louisiana and Tennessee, are, are looking promising. Yeah. What the heck happened to California? I remember in our day, we used to work out there with Bill Honig. I think he was. Yeah, yeah. And he's, and, still, mean, he's still there, um, commenting on what's going on. Not in charge, though, no. No, no, not in charge, yeah. and, and and not young, uh, but but sharp. Well, I don't fault him for that, goodness. <laughs> as, as, I. I do, as I don't fault myself, I won't speak about your case, but go ahead. Uh, got it. Um, I, California is a complicated story, but I think the shortest possible version of it is they opted to be nice, and to let their teachers union be nice to kids and minorities and and let their teachers union run amok. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if you put those two things together, you don't end up with much rigor in your system. Well, I, I should confess, because uh, listeners this podcast know I'm, I'm part of a group called Conservative Leaders for Education. One of the things we're doing is working directly with these state legislators at the state level to implement some of this new... Mm-hmm. These new possible, and I'll tell you, there are some real heroes. Some of these folks really want to do the right thing, including, you know, modeling some of the Massachusetts stuff uh, on. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, in and uh, Godspeed to them. <laughs> well, this is great. Give us Professor Finn before we let you go, and we're very grateful. Uh, a homework assignment. What should we read? If you want to read more about Massachusetts Miracle or about the opposite in in Washington, uh, give us a reading assignment. Well, D- Driscoll's book, um, is, Harvard Education Press, uh, is terrific and, and, a, and a good read and, and, and nicely written. Um, and What's the name I'm, of it? Hang on one second. I think it's on my shelf here. 
Uh, I keep forgetting the title. Uh, yeah, I do too. What is that? I am reading uh, a book, and people say, "What's the name?" And I say, "I don't know." Uh, here it is: "Commitment and Common Sense." Uh-huh. Subtitle: Leading Education Reform in Massachusetts. David P. Driscoll. Uh, that okay. is worth reading. And um, Eva Moskowitz's memoir is of her of her struggles in New York is worth reading. Uh, if only to get her principles of education. She's got like 16 principles in, in her last chapter, um, and they are like a breath of fresh air uh, yeah. for, for people who are accustomed to the BS that is so often heard in education circles. Great. Terrific. Checker, thank you. Best to you. Okay. Best to your family. Have a wonderful break, and uh, thank you. we appreciate Happy everything holidays. you do. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, folks, uh, in-depth uh, conversations today. Good show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I want you to have a happy new year. We're going to be back with you. We're going to continue this uh, adventure, uh, podcast adventure. I-, I hope you're enjoying it half as much as I am. And uh, we welcome your thoughts and your suggestions. Thanks, folks. Happy new year. See you in it. <laughs>